to truly believe in the magic. What's up, Magic fans? This is Mackenzie Thurkill of the Orlando Magic in Fox Sports, Florida, and you're listening to the Penny for Your Thoughts podcast from my favorite guys across the pond at Orlando Magic UK. Now it's over to Geraint, Mikey, and Paul. Go Magic! What's up, Magic fans, and welcome back to another episode of Penny for Your Thoughts, the Orlando Magic UK podcast. My name's Mikey. As always, I'm joined by the elder statesman of the team, Mr. Bacon. How are we, Biffa? Very well, my friend. Thank you. How's yourself? Good, All good? All right, mate. All right. Good, this time, good, good, good. We're getting a bit excited about tomorrow night. We'll talk about that in a minute. Of course we are. Of course we are. The flags okay. are flying outside, so yeah. And then uh, we're also joined by the bitter Welshman <laughs> slash Danishman, <laughs> Mr. Garrett Jones. Thank you for having me. There's also one title <laughs> that we didn't bring up the last time we had Josh on. Uh, when uh, we had Dan Savage, which is you're the Welsh Josh Cohen, you're your Stato as we call you. So uh, there you go. You got many umbrellas, G. Yeah, that's quite uh, quite uh, a title to, to hold. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. Dan tells us Josh that uh, you're a mind of information that you'll you 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 can just trot stats out out of nowhere. That that really depends on who exactly is relaying that information, but it varies from day to day. Maybe it, on a Sunday, I might know more than on a Monday. It all depends on the week and the situation. But uh, I always appreciate the compliment for sure. And uh, and and we've already introduced Josh. Uh, Josh is back for his second appearance on the podcast. Uh, writer and digital content manager for OrlandoMagic.com. Josh, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me once again. It was a blast last time, and I'm sure with so much going on in the NBA and the Magic that it'll be even better this time, I presume. Absolutely. There's certainly a lot to talk about. Absolutely. Well, before we start, I just want to give a quick shout out to um, our friends Luke and Louise, uh, friends of we that we went to Orlando with for the playoffs in 2019. They just had their first baby yesterday, uh, little baby Jensen, last, last evening. So, uh Congratulations to you guys. And uh, before we push on, G, are you, uh, what's, your, what's your predictions for the England game? So Josh, I don't know if you know, there's a, there's a big semi-final going on tomorrow night. I've paid a little bit of attention to the Euro Cup. I'm not okay. a huge soccer guy, but I do get interested in international competition. So even if it's just the European countries, I will pay somewhat close attention to it. And I did watch one of the England games. I want to say it was, it was one of the uh, against. Did they play Germany? Yes. Did, yes. Yeah. yeah. I think I watched the one against Germany. Yeah, we're still smiling from that one. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime England can beat Germany, you see right. a lot of very, very happy Englishmen. That's what I gathered yeah. from the broadcast. Not so much the Welsh contingent. <laughs> <laughs> No, sir. No, sir. No, and, so going and, back to you. And just in fairness to uh, our Scottish followers, we should say, as England fans, we were out. We know we were outplayed in that game. Fair play to the guys. Yeah. Yeah, I did get asked by um, the guys, Angus, Dean and Ian, to mention that. So, um, yeah, well done hey. on mentioning it, Paul. That's very uh, noble of you. Hey, there's no point being uh, bitter and, you know, <laughs> petty-minded about things. When you're outplayed, you're outplayed and they played well that game. Yeah. Granted, they still didn't score, but hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but going back to your prediction for tomorrow, um, Denmark are my tournament team. So this isn't just because it's England. You know that. You can see from the 96 kit and Denmark are my second team. Um, I, pro England will probably win, but 
let's just go with a 1-0 Denmark win. Smash and grab. So, uh, fingers crossed. It's possible. It's possible, pal. Um, I don't know. Um, I want to say that we could produce another performance like that of the quarters. Uh, I don't know. It could he, hey, we'll remember Iceland from a previous occasion. You know, it can, it could go anyway. And I'll, nice. I'm, I'm, I'll be celebrating if we win and I'll still have a pint if we lose. Best team win and all that. Any excuse for a pint. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> two nil. <laughs> I think we'll win by two goals as well. But there we go. We'll see. So, Josh, the last time we had you on was back in March. First question: How glad are you, how glad are you the season's over? <laughs> well, obviously, it was a fairly long season, even though it was technically a shortened season. 10 games fewer than it normally would be. But with all the injuries and all the situations that occur throughout the year, it was somewhat relieving, but it's always bittersweet because I love NBA basketball. I love when it continues. It would be great if we could have continued on through some playoff basketball as well. But we're looking ahead to the future now. There's so much to get excited about as far as the draft and there'll be a summer league this year and obviously a new coach. So I feel like there's so much positive on the horizon and I'm just looking forward to seeing how exactly it plays out. Again, after a few weeks after we had you on the show, the uh, front office made the decision to uh, enter rebuild, um, full on rebuild. So what are your thoughts on where we are as a roster and how we stand, how we're set for moving forward? I love the moves for a variety of reasons. And the number one thing, and I brought this up on other shows and and writings that I've done, to me, there's a false narrative out there. And that is that there's a belief that the team that nets the best player in the moment wins the trade all the time. And it's so far from the truth. We've seen so many times in recent years that the team that actually is considered the sellers go on and essentially win the trades down the road. I mean, for example, and these are marginal cases, but think about the Jimmy Butler to Minnesota deal from a few years back, right? Now, Jimmy Butler is a great player, essentially a perennial all-star with a few exceptions here and there. And he's done a great job in Miami. But when he went to Minnesota, he was there for a year and a half. They did go to the playoffs the one year, lost in the first round in five games to Houston. And he really didn't do that much for the organization ultimately. However, the Bulls, on the other hand, even though they're still trying to make strides, they got Zach Levine in that deal. They got Lowry Marketing in that deal. They freed up salary cap space in that deal. I can't necessarily categorize them as a winner of the trade, but certainly they didn't lose the trade. And maybe ultimately we'll see them as a winner of that trade. If Levine goes on and becomes the player that everybody assumes he can be, which is much more than just a point getter, which is someone who not only fills up the stat sheet, but could also lead the team deeper into the playoffs. Uh, Think about, and I know Chris Paul's having an unbelievable ride to the NBA finals, but when he went to Houston, you know, that trade gave the Clippers not only guys like Montrez Harrell, Lou Williams, uh, Patrick Beverly, but it freed up the salary cap space. They were able to then go and sign Kawhi Leonard, A couple years later, they were able to trade for Paul George using all the assets they had. So there's another one. Think about the Boston-Brooklyn deal back in 2013. Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce go to the Nets. What do the Celtics get? A ton of draft capital, which then includes them getting Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, etc. So we're seeing cases like this all the time. Kyrie Irving, for example, going to Boston, right? Everybody ridiculed the Cavs for the deal. But ultimately, they got Colin Sexton out of it, even though he isn't necessarily a superstar yet. 
He's still obviously a very good player and a rising player. Isaiah Thomas didn't work out, but still essentially a good deal for Cleveland. So when you think about these magic trades of recent, you know, Vucevic, great player, but he's probably capped and he's, he's going to go on and probably be very successful (laughs) in Chicago, but I wouldn't necessarily categorize him as a transformative player. And certainly Evan Fournier and Aaron Gordon, as good as they are, they're not transformative players. So the only way to sort of dig out of this stuck in the middle of the road scenario, which I think is what the magic we're in, you have to trade those guys, you have to gain assets, and you have to build essentially from the ground up. And now with all this draft capital and all these assets they've attained, you know, including RJ Hampton, Wendell Carter, future picks from both Chicago and Denver and Boston, I feel like they've positioned themselves favorably to at least give, give themselves a reasonable chance. It's not a guarantee, obviously. We see this all the time, rebuilding teams. They try, and sometimes they don't reach their ceiling. But at least it opens up the door to add the pieces that will be necessary to make dramatic changes moving forward. And we'll see how it plays out. The draft is just a few weeks away. They're going to have to score big in this draft. They have the two picks in the top 10. They're in position to make major gains. Now it just comes down to making the right decisions and getting these guys to gel together. So that essentially is my take of those trades, even though, you know, now we're a few months out of it. But I also think the progress Hampton made toward the end of the year, the progress Wendell Carter made, although he did deal with some injury issues late, I think was also very promising. So we will see, you know, whoever the new coach is, we'll have to get everybody on the same page, but I really liked what I saw from the young core. And I obviously am very excited about the potential of having so many draft picks to work with. Yeah. And when you look at the uh, the potential for Jonathan Isaac coming back to play with these guys, along with Markel, hopefully, Hey, I th- I th- I'm, I'm quite confident as to the position we're in. Nobody, none of us believe it's going to be an instant result from wherever we get in this particular draft or this off-season. That it's going to be a period that we've got to build on. But I, I'm genuinely excited for the position that we are starting from. I don't feel that we're at, at the very base level. I feel that we're a couple of rungs up the ladder. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be yeah, and you look at a team like Phoenix, for example, who's in the NBA Finals right now. I mean, you know, Devin Booker was a steal yeah. of the 2015 draft, getting him 13th overall, uh, which is a whole side note that you don't need the top pick in the draft to go on and become a, a juggernaut team. Although DeAndre Ayton was the first overall pick, there's other ways you can build a championship contender, and it's not necessarily having a necessarily a top three draft pick, but. You know, they're a case of building from the ground up, making quality trades, drafting quality players, getting the right coach in. Monty Williams completely changed that program. And now, obviously, they're in contention for the title being in the finals. So they're just another one of the many examples that you don't need to necessarily go out and sign, you know, superstar free agents to build a powerhouse, which I think is what Phoenix is becoming. Yeah, sweet. Well, well, the Magic have got a few big weeks ahead of us. We've obviously got the coaching search going on as things stand. Um, so just a, a bit of a roundup. So the Magic are still one of three teams yet to hire a new head coach along with the Pelicans and the Wizards. Um, last week, we dropped the podcast on Wednesday and uh, the same day Penny Hardaway announces on, on Instagram that he's going to remain as Memphis head coach. So... Uh, last week's big segment was a waste of time, but it was all right. It was all good. Um, it was fun. It was fun. It was good fun. It was good fun breaking it down. Um, so, really, the big news this week: um, Josh Robbins of the Athletic announced 
um, that Wes Unsell Jr. is a serious candidate for the Magic head coaching job. Um, Jamal Mosley, who's the assistant coach for Dallas Mavericks, um, has also interviewed for the Magic job. And I saw, um, I don't remember who the reporter was, but there was a tweet yesterday. They reckon he's also one of the serious candidates for, for that job as well. Somebody who apparently has really good ties with Luka Doncic um, and, and is a bit of a player's coach. Um, so that's that's really, really the main noticeables. Um, obviously, the LA Clippers got uh, eliminated from the playoffs and there's been some rumours whether the Magic might bring in Kenny Atkinson. There's nothing said on that at the moment. Um, so we sit and wait to see to see what happens with, with the Magic job. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, so, Josh, the Magic, as we record, haven't appointed a new head coach. In your opinion, how important is it to the Magic to appoint the right coach for the rebuild? Yeah, I mean, it's critical. You know, we saw, you know, even when the Magic hired Steve Clifford, it was drastic, the changes that he was able to make going from where they were in 2018 to where they essentially ended up by the time he was gone. So I think that it makes a major difference. We're seeing that essentially throughout these playoffs as well. I mean, think about Atlanta, Oops. you know, yeah. they had Lloyd Pierce for a while. You know, he's a good coach. I think he's probably better suited as an assistant, but when they made the change to Nate McMillan, it dramatically changed their program. It, I would say reversed their tendencies because they were never known for necessarily being a defensive minded team. But I think McMillan instilled some defensive principles that completely turned around their mentality. And Clint Capella arguably could have been defensive player of the year. I mean, he wasn't at the level of Rudy Gobert or Ben Simmons, but I think he was in the conversation. And that really started when McMillan took over. You know, the same thing with a guy like John Collins. John Collins was never known for being a defensive minded oriented player. But I think with McMillan, he was put in the right spots. I think he was able to use his athleticism more. His IQ, I think, improved. I just think overall, he became a more suitable defender and was able to switch and guard in different situations. Even Trey Young, who obviously is considered a liability on defense, I think improved somewhat toward the end of the year. And I think, again, McMillan played a big part in that. So I already touched on Monty Williams in Phoenix, the changes that he's made for that organization. So yeah, it's, it's very important. And I still believe firmly, no matter who they select, it's all going to come down to the defense. We're seeing it year after year after year. People are constantly, this is another one of those false narratives, by the way, I, I, I mentioned this on another program. There's a belief out there that nobody plays defense anymore. And I think it's, couldn't be further from the truth. You know, since 1996, and this is a, a stat, this is a, is a fact, there've only been two teams to win the championship that did not rank in the top 10 in the regular season in defensive efficiency. One of them ranked 11th. So if you even want to wipe them out, you can. That was the Warriors of 17-18, and they were considered arguably the greatest team of all time. So they did rank number one in defense in the playoffs. So you might want to just eliminate that one from the, from the mix. But the only other team that didn't rank in the top 10 in defensive efficiency during a regular season that went on to win the title was the 2000-2001 Lakers arguably the best playoff team of all time with Shaq and Kobe in that group. So they only lost one game that playoff. So, you know, they swept through the, the West and then lost game one against the Sixers and then they cruised to the title. So essentially every year we're seeing defense be at the pinnacle of importance and it shouldn't be any different moving forward. And I truly believe, and I think this has been the mentality of the magic 
for as long as I can, since, since I've been working there, you know, uh, starting with Stan Van Gundy, even when they had Jacques Vaughn, certainly through a guy like Scott Skiles, Steve Clifford, Frank Vogel as well. We saw what Frank Vogel has done with the Lakers, turning them into one of the best defensive teams. So I think no matter who they select, I think defense is going to be the priority and they have the players in place to become an elite defensive team with guys like yeah. Jonathan Isaac, Wendell Carter up front. Those two guys can switch. They have fast moving feet. I think they can guard in different situations, different scenarios. And then on the perimeter, I think Markel has the potential to be a very good defender, uh, along with guys like you know Gary Harris, assuming he's in it for the long haul. I even think a guy like Cole Anthony, even though he's smaller, he's willing to take charges. He's pesky. He's able to get in your face. He's very good with ball pressure. So I think the sky's the limit for this team to become an elite defensive team, and the coach will have a major say in that and will have a major influence on it. Yeah. I know you're not allowed to mention names, but when you look at some of the names reported for this magic job, defense seems to be one of the main sort of factors that, that they're really good at. Um, and also they've got a lot of experience in, in the league as, as a whole, really. So. Um, so Josh, once the magic gets a new head coach, I just want to know the, the procedure when it comes to assistant coaches. So, how are the assistant coaches recruited? Does the new head coach identify a few, a few, and um, do they sort of have a chat with the team, uh, sort of get a, an interview in conjunction with the team, or do they just bring their own people? Yeah, it probably depends on the situation. Most of the time, it does appear that the head coach will identify the assistants that he or she. Uh, once in their program. We saw with Steve Clifford that his entire staff essentially came with him from Charlotte for the most part with a few exceptions. So I wouldn't be surprised if something similar happened like that with the new coach. I think that it's important. You know, we talk about camaraderie and chemistry between players. I actually think it's just as important for coaches to have that same chemistry and same camaraderie. Because if you think about it, they're spending so much time in the film room together. There's going to be a lot of debates, a lot of arguments. And it's important for them to all be on the same page. You know, there's nothing worse than a room filled with people who all have their own beliefs and their own perspectives of how things should work. And so I firmly believe that it's it's most important for the head coach to have a major say, if not the full say, in who his or her assistant coaches are going to be. And they probably discuss that with the president of basketball operations in most cases or general managers, I would imagine it goes through the entire system before it's finalized. So I, from my understanding that the head coach will essentially have his pile or have his or her pile of candidates in place, and then it will get approved by, you know, upper management or whatnot. But I, I think generally speaking, the, the head coach will bring in the people that's best for him or her to work with. It's an interesting point because you have to look at the, there's a whole element of trust involved as well. You look at how Steve Clifford was relying on the guy sat there with his with his screen watching the game four seconds delay for the challenge and just turning. Are we doing this? There has to be that trust and belief there amongst each other as well. So yeah, it's a real good yeah. point. So moving on to the NBA draft combine, uh, which which wrapped up last week in Chicago, where league executive scouts and, and agents all all got a chance to to see some of these prospects in the upcoming draft showcase themselves on the court and interviews. Um, James Booknight was one of the players that seemed to be getting a lot of buzz with with some of his videos of shooting the ball and things like that. Um, I think it was 
um, Josh Robbins, or it was reported that Scotty Barnes, Keon Johnson and Jalen Johnson all interviewed with the Magic at the Draft Combine. Um, so, uh, And they're all sort of the sort of players that might be in and around where, where the Magic pick. Um, so Josh, without placing any sort of issue with, with what we've already talked about off air, um, in media circles, what sort of players do you feel like maybe increased their draft stock or or gave themselves um, maybe a different perception after the draft combine and maybe up their value a little bit? Yeah, one guy that I think is a little bit off the radar, but I do think he's improving his stock is Josh mm-hmm. Christopher from Arizona State. Okay. Uh, he also played with Marcus Bagley, who's another player in the pool. But Christopher is a pretty unique player. Apparently, he's gotten some really good guidance from James Harden, who formerly went to Arizona State. And he has, I would say, a very all-encompassing offensive game. He's got really good footwork. He has an improving touch when he drives to the basket. Not a great outside shooter yet, but I do think he's improving. He ended the year, if my memory serves me correctly, 12 of 27 from three, but he started really poorly. I think he only made three of his first like 23s, but then he finished really strong from deep. He has really good size. He's about 6'6", so I do think he can guard multiple positions. He's not known for his defense, but I do think he has a chance to blossom in that area over time with more uh, development. But what I like about him is his self-creation. Like He can actually pull up off the dribble. He can get all the way to the basket. He's willing to draw contact. And it's a, it's for him, as it is for most young players, a matter of shot selection. Shot selection is a problem for most of these guys. They have a tendency to, you know, even in the combine, it was noticeable. They force up shots when they have contested defenders or two defenders coming at them and making the right play. You know, I've said, I've talked about this before. Playmaking is more important than scoring. I firmly believe that. that's an opinion. It's not a fact, but I firmly believe playmaking is more important than scoring, which is why, you know, it's a very uh, contentious uh, argument, but I- I've said for a long time that, you know, before all the injuries to the, to Brooklyn, you know, who was the better player on that team, Kevin Durant or James Harden. And most people would obviously say Kevin Durant because he's such a scoring, you know, he scores in bunches and he scores so effortlessly. It's pretty remarkable what he's able to do. But I think a case could be made that James Harden actually, at least during the regular season, was the best player on that team because he's more of an all-encompassing player. He's got his the playmaking is second to none. He's got amazing vision. He's got amazing instincts. And he could score if you need him to, even though he's not as efficient as a guy like Durant. Kind of a hot take. I'm not I'm not definitively saying that I think Harden is better than Durant. I'm just saying that you, a case could be made based on what mm. I view is most important, which is, yeah. which is playmaking. Uh, but those are all time great players. So that's a separate conversation. Uh, but yeah, Christopher is one of those guys that I think has the potential to kind of bloom into a very good playmaker and be just a good enough of a score to be all around impressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, another guy that I, that I really like, he actually didn't perform at the combine. So it's a little bit off topic, but I really think he needs to be viewed more closely. And that is Chris Duarte from Oregon. Uh, first off guys that have come from Oregon tend to do very well in the NBA. We've seen Dylan Brooks with Memphis have some success. Chris Boucher with Toronto. He had a great year. Um, you know, Peyton Pritchard with Boston it looks like he's going to be a really good player. So I, I think he's someone to keep an eye on. He is, uh, he's what I would just, how I would describe him is he is super efficient. So when you're comparing, let's say Josh Christopher to Chris Duarte, uh, Christopher is much less efficient, right? He's more of a, 
an acrobatic scorer in the sense that he's got better footwork. He can kind of wiggle around. He can step back. He can give you a few fakes, rise and, and launch. While Duarte to me is much more basic, but he's, he's such a high IQ player. He knows the right spots to, to find. And like I said before, he's so efficient. He shot a really high percentage from both inside and outside the arc. So we're talking about a really good three-point shooter. So someone who spaces the floor. He lacks burst and explosiveness, but he makes it up with solid moves. And again, a very effective and efficient approach at at getting to the basket or kind of just staying back and knocking down threes. And and then more important than that, he's a great defender. Uh, He was considered one of the best defenders in the Pac-12 and he was named, uh, he, he won the Jerry West Award, which goes to the top men's college basketball shooting guard. So Duarte is someone that I really think is impressive and has a chance to, I think, go higher than people project him to go. Uh, I'm sure he'll be a first round pick regardless, but we'll see how that plays out. Uh, I think some others, uh, Sharif Cooper has been getting a lot of attention lately, and I think that's deserved. Uh, his his vision is amazing. I mean, he's got, he's arguably, you can make an argument that he's the best passer in this draft in the sense that his, his instincts, uh, the way he gets up and down the court, he's got pretty good speed. And when he gets into the lane, he sets his teammates up for, for good, for good situations. He can drive and kick. He can get all the way to the basket. Uh, his problem is his, he can't shoot right now. I mean, he's just not a good three point shooter. So uh, that's going to be something that he's going to have to work on as it is for most of these guys. But um, you know, he, he went to Auburn and, and I think has a chance to, uh, to be really good in the NBA. If he finds the right team, the right situation, the right coaching. And uh, so those are three guys that come to mind. Uh, there's probably a few others that I'm, that I'm, you know, not mentioning, I think Bones Highland uh, is someone I guess else that's been getting a lot of attention, uh, kind of a lanky score first mentality guard uh, that I think could be pretty good in the NBA. So these are just, these are just guys that I thought either had a, a good outing at the combine or simply have done enough the last few weeks away from the combine to, to rise a, a, up the, up the ladder a little bit. Do you think teams? Looking, sorry. Sorry. I was going to say, do you think teams are, are valuing the draft combine more this year, more than ever, because of COVID and not being able to go and see a lot of these players play in person during during the normal season? Yeah, probably. I mean, I I would imagine all the testing that's done, whether it's like the shuttle run or the vertical leap, and all these different measurements that are that are done at the combine is being viewed a little bit more closely than in the past because that was kind of essentially missed out on a year ago. And I think probably some general managers felt like they didn't have that necessary material to make the best possible decisions that they can make on the, on, in the draft. So yeah, I do think that the combine will serve as a, a major tool for all the general managers to go the direction that they feel is best and, you know, like I mentioned before, there were a few guys that stood out above the rest at the combine and then others in individual workouts, at least based on what we're hearing in reports, uh, are, are looking really strong and looking even better than they looked at the college level or the international level or even in the G League. So I think, uh, yeah, I, I think to answer your question, I think the combine will be used more resourcefully than probably in the past, because I think we learned a year ago that it was uh, heavily, heavily missed. Uh, and, and it's definitely a resource that is overlooked probably during the process a bit. We're looking forward to actually hearing your takes on these plays. Cause I'm, I, I don't know. I can't speak for the guys, but I'm not one for watching college basketball. We don't have that much of it 
broadcast over here anyway. And I'm certainly not one for watching YouTube shooting videos and stuff like this because I don't think you can necessarily trust them. So to hear your takes on some of these guys has been really interesting. I know we're going to come on to more about the, the prospects in a moment, but something I've got to ask you is, um, and this, this isn't about giving names because uh, we are aware of the restrictions that you are under. But as we look at the roster uh, that we have at the Magic at this moment, what would you identify as the team's most immediate need to address in the off-season, whether that's through drafts, trades or free agency? Well, I, as far as the draft, I, I think the, where the Magic are right now in their rebuild, in all likelihood, it should be best talent available over positional need. That's always a debate every year with every team yeah. going to the draft. And I think based on where Orlando is currently, it probably would be best to just simply target whoever the best player is in their mind at the two slots that they're picking from in the first round. And the same could be said in the second round as well. But the second round obviously is just more of a, a luck situation. We see every year that, you know, Chris Middleton, for example, nobody could have possibly projected he'd be the player that he is now, or even a guy like Draymond Green or you know, before he got hurt, a guy like Isaiah Thomas, you know, these are just randoms. But, uh, you know, the first round, I do think best talent available makes the most sense, unless you're picking late in the first round and you've just come off a major playoff run and you already have enough of those, you know, star level players on your roster to work with. So from a draft standpoint, I definitely think just simply best talent available is probably the way to go. But there could be a few exceptions. And probably one of those exceptions is if there's kind of a tie in talent where then you say, well, we have all these guards in place, so should we go with a big? Or we have bigs, you know, whether it's Wendell Carter or Mo Bamba, and we need more, you know, versatile defenders on the wings, or we need a scoring forward or whatever the case may be. So uh, I think it's kind of multidimensional, especially with a team like the Magic right now, who I think are in need. I think it's fair to say they're in need of a lot, you know, even though they have a lot of young players, but none of those players are locks, to be with the team long-term. So we're still trying to figure out who the cornerstone pieces are going to be, who the franchise stars are going to be. And it's very possible down the road when we look back, the players currently on the roster may end up being those guys. We, we don't know yeah. yet. It's too early to tell. So I just think, I think at this stage, probably you throw stuff at the wall, you see what sticks, you go from there. I don't think it necessarily matters if you have too many guys at one position. It may create some degree of animosity if some guy, one guy is getting more playing time than another and they both feel they're on the same level. That could happen, and that has to be figured out by you know the coach and, and upper management. But I think that uh, essentially once you figure out who your best players are, you could work from there and work around them and then fill in the gaps from there. You know, and that's that's what we see from every team. You know, mm -hmm. you you get your stars, and then you fill them out with the right supporting cast, just like what Milwaukee's done. You know, they 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 hit the jackpot with Giannis Antetokounmpo, and then they figure out who the right supporting cast members are. They trade for a guy like Brooke Lopez, space the floor, even though now he's back to, you know, going on a little block a little bit. But obviously, what made him most effective in Milwaukee was his spacing. And you have your ISO score in Middleton. You get you trade for a guy like PJ Tucker, who's the versatile, you know, hard nosed, ten tenacious defender who can guard multiple guys. We saw against Kevin Durant what he did, even though Durant still was able to score a million. But Tucker made it hard for him. And then trading for Drew Holiday last offseason, major upgrade from Eric Bledsoe. So you see how this kind of works, where you have your your superstar guy, Giannis in this case, and then you get the right guys around him so that all the pieces fit together and the system works 
appropriately and properly based on what the coach is implementing with that team. And now, you know, we're seeing it really closely, just how good the Bucks are when they're clicking on all cylinders. And I think it's, even though Giannis is hurt right now, we see how all the pieces fit together. And it's probably the main reason why they've been able to get all the way to the finals. Yeah. So according to most NBA rankings, there's a, there's a, there's a top five. There's like a, a clear top five of Kay Cunningham, uh, Mobley, Jalen Green, Jalen Suggs, and, and Jonathan Kaminga. Without ranking them, can you sort of break down each of their games, strengths, weaknesses, and, and who you would probably compare the most to, to, to somebody who's already in the league? Sure. Well, Kay Cunningham obviously is getting the most attention, and I think he has a chance to be the next Grant Hill. There's a little bit of Jason Tatum in there because he has a very similar-looking step-back jumper. The form is very comparable. I don't think he's going to be as prolific of a score as Tatum because Tatum has a, a multitude of moves that allows him to create more space than Cade at this point. It could change because Cade is so young and he may develop that a more all-encompassing offensive repertoire as he develops. But his his vision, his passing, he's 6'8", and so he can guard. See, that he's being heavily compared also to Luka Doncic. I mean, maybe that's his number one comparison, and I probably should have emphasized that. Although Grant Hill is someone, you know, who somewhat similar length and the playmaking ability to me is kind of similar. But what he makes up with, as far as not having much speed and burst and explosiveness, he makes it up with creativity, craftiness, and footwork, which is what Doncic does so well. Like Doncic doesn't blow by guys based on speed. He's able okay. to figure, manipulate his defenders, get, get in front of them, get around them. His, his brain just seems so advanced from the competition. And Cade seems to show some of those same movements. So if, if as far as comparisons for Cade, Grant Hill, Luka Doncic, maybe even a little bit of Ben Simmons based on his transition play. Because Ben Simmons, you know, I know he's getting criticized like crazy right now for not shooting, but, you know, his transition game is arguably maybe the best in the league considering he's 6'10", 6'11". But uh, I think Kate has similar movements in transition and he's really good looking ahead. He makes some really sharp hit-ahead passes. And uh, I think he's just got a complete game both ends of the floor. He shot well in college. That was considered his weakness going into college, but he kind of... Silence the critics in that area, but we'll see if he, the only, the only thing with Kate is, will he be a prolific enough scorer? right? We don't know if he can average 25 a game. Like he should at least average 18. Will he be good enough of a score to be that like megastar? I think that's really the, the question mark with him. Uh, moving over to a guy like Jalen Green, who is a true scorer. I mean, you're talking about a guy who has every move in the book, super creative, Shot creation is arguably maybe the best in the draft. And he's got good size, although he's got to put on more strength. I think he yeah. only weighs 180 right now, even though he's 6'5". I think you're looking at a guy like Zach Levine. Bradley Beal, although he's a little taller than Beal, the movements are similar. He's got the step back. He can, he can, he, he's got speed. You know, he's explosive. He gets all the way to the basket. Uh, I think he'll, I think he'll be willing to draw fouls, although that wasn't necessarily that visible in the G League. Uh, I just think you're talking about a true score. I think the problem there, or simply the unknown, is can he do anything else at a high level, right? Can he defend at a high level? Can he play make at a high level? Will he get his teammates involved at a high level or a high rate? Uh, is he going to be a one-man band player, or is he going to be a guy that can make everyone around him better? Because if you're focusing the offense on him, 
and he simply scores, scores, score, what does that do for his teammates? And that's been an issue for some of the other uh, high profile scorers in the league. You know, I mean, you know, I, there, there, there's a few that come to mind that kind of fit into that category. Like, like Buddy Heald, for example, even though he has De'Aaron Fox playing with him, like he's got a scorer's mentality, but it doesn't seem to help his teammates. And I'm not, I'm not criticizing Buddy Heald, but you know, he's a great shooter and he's got a scorer's mentality, but is he getting others involved? Like, is his playmaking good enough to be a, you know, a, a top tier talent? So I, I think Jalen Green kind of falls into that category where, you know, great scorer, but what else does he do at a high level? Right. Um, and that's where the Zach Levine comparisons almost come in as yeah, well, isn't yeah, it? I mean, you could argue yeah. the last few years where he's been putting up numbers every year, but the balls aren't winning significantly, are they? Right. So does it translate to winning? And that's exactly. that's always been a question mark with true scorers. We've seen yeah. through NBA history, there's guys who put up great numbers, but they're always on losing teams. And some people question why that is. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that if the ball is sticking and it's not you know, getting shared, it has a tendency to lead to other guys being complacent and not feeling as involved. And, and that could be a problem. Yeah. And, and I think Levine, the, the change there with him, I think as he matured is that first off, he became an extremely efficient scorer. So, I mean, he shot, you know, such high percentages this past year and that's what made him an all-star. Yeah. Uh, he was close to being a 50, 40, 90 guy. He wasn't quite Kyrie Irving was the only one who did that this year, but like Zach Levine was close, which is if you're going to, if you're going to be just a score, you're going to have to be that you're going to have yeah. to be super efficient. Otherwise it's just, you know, to me, it's a high volume, but uh, low, low productivity. Um, so that to me is green in a nutshell. I would say uh, like a guy like Jonathan Kaminga, I think you're, you're talking about one of the more versatile players in the draft. You know what? One of the things that I think makes him intriguing is that there is not a designated role for him. You can plug him in different situations and I think he could be effective. He reminds me a little bit of Pascal Siakam in the sense that on offense, he's got very similar footwork and he also has almost an identical spin move that he uses to create a shot. Uh, he's got an up and under move also that's very similar to Siakam. Siakam to me became a great player because he, at his size at like 6'9", although I think Kaminga is listed at 6'7", so we'll see what what the measurements look like. But uh Siakam is able to like six work. eight, Josh. Six, six eight, eight is listed out. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you know, like like Siakam, for example, like he's able to manipulate his defender through like all these different kind of juke moves, and like you don't really know he's he's unpredictable. You don't really know what his next step is going to be, and I think Kaminga has a little bit of that in him, but he's not a natural scorer. So he he only shot, I believe, thirty eight percent in the G League overall, twenty four percent from three. If my numbers, if I remember the numbers correctly, could be off by a bit, but. Uh, not being a natural scorer could hinder him a little bit, but he's so young that that obviously could yeah. change over time. But the defense... What do you, what, what, what do you think to his shot mechanics? Because they don't look that bad to me. No, I don't think they're bad at all. No. I don't think they're bad at all. And I think most people think that over time, those percentages will rise pretty, pretty significantly. Mm. I mean, you know, when you're 18, 19 years old, going up against grown men, which essentially is yeah. what he did this past year. Yeah. It's a transition period. You know, Jalen Green, you know, he played with Jalen Green. So, like, Green is a true scorer. So, I think that maybe hurt Kamingo a little bit because we were comparing the two a little bit because they played together. But they're very different players. Uh, in the end, and again, not this is not insinuating one's going to be better than the other, but, like, you know, Kaminga at minimum should be a defensive stopper. Like, 
you know, some have compared him to Jalen Brown, right? Now, Jalen Brown has has become a versatile two-way player. And remember, when Jalen Brown was at California in college, he didn't shoot high percentages. He didn't shoot well from three. Hmm. But with the work and with the proper coaching and being in the right system, he improved immensely in that area. Now he's actually a high-level three-point shooter and a shot creator. So I could see some of those similarities to guys like that. And yeah, I, I think, I think he's, he's very impressive uh, from a length standpoint, overall size, versatility. If you need him to guard a point guard, he can do that. He could switch and pick and roll. He guards in space. He guards on the island. He can stay in front of guys. Uh, I think it's very hard for, for opponents to zip by him and, and dribble penetration. I think in isolation, he could be effective against different types of players. Like if you need him to guard a guy like Trey Young, now Trey Young, he'll get in front of you, use his hip and draw a foul. Kaminga is going to have to learn those kinds of habits with, with guys he's guarding. But I also think he can guard all the way up to force. You know, he's got to build his body, but there's no reason to believe that he can't guard a guy like, like Siakam or, yeah. you know, uh, more traditional fours, whether it be like, you know, Kevin Love or, you know, Blake Griffin, for example, even though those guys are past their time, but just more traditional fours uh, or guys who stretch the floor, for example. I think he did have a problem from what I saw in contesting threes. Yeah. So he'll have to learn that aspect of the game, but his length should give him an advantage. And can you see a little bit of, say, Aaron Gordon, his versatility being able to defend? More, I don't know. Is that a good comparison? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that's fair. I mean, I think, I think Gordon is more of a freak athlete. I think yeah. he's more of a high riser. Mm-hmm. I don't think necessarily Kaminga is someone's going to blow anyone away with his vertical leap. I mean, he can obviously jump, but yeah. I think Gordon, you know, as we've seen, with the magic and then certainly in dunk contests, it is, uh, he's a unique, you know, yeah. type of player yes, in the man. sense that his, his, his agility and his athleticism is so off the charts. I think Kaminga plays a little bit be- less, be- uh, I wouldn't say he plays completely below the rim, but I think he's most effective kind of being a little bit more methodical, you know, okay. Gordon, I think tried to be methodical, but it wasn't that that's not favorable work. No. run up and down. Like he needs to be running at full speed catching lobs, you know, and because we saw when you put the ball in his hands, he's not as effective, right? He doesn't have the efficiency. He doesn't have the shot creation. I think Kaminga has a little more of that. I think Kaminga could be a much better shot creator mm-hmm. and uh, efficiency is going to be one of the main issues. And then again, I just think he could be an elite defender, you know, just looking at his stats for the season. They're, they're not awful, are they? Averaging seventeen point nine points yeah, and you know, you know, uh, seven yeah. odd seven odd rebounds and one point one on the steals blocks. Yeah, he should be, well, he should be able to fill up the stat sheet because he can dip his hand in different categories. And yeah. importantly, if he's playing high level defense, that'll also lead to potential on the offensive end as far as transition points, breakaways, and so he 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 also plays at a nice speed. You know, he's not going to take plays off. He works hard. He is someone that's going to cut back door, for example. Like, he's not going to stand still. So, like, you know, unlike true ISO scores, he's someone who can score playing off the ball, where he can cut, he could slash, he can he could be the roller in pick and roll and roll inside or pop if he develops a three-point shot. So, um, and I think he's more than willing to draw contact, get to the line. So, yeah, he's got a lot of potential. Um and then I, we, the other two, Jalen Suggs uh, and uh, and Evan Mobley. I'll go try to go quick with them. I know I went a, went a little long winded with the right. other three, but uh, Mo, Mobley, you know, 
you know, I think there's a little bit of fear with, with taking bigs high because some of the recent ones haven't necessarily panned out. Although DeAndre Ayton is finally starting to come into his yeah. own. But when you look at a guy like Marvin Bagley, who's always hurt, there's like some fear there. You know, you take a guy like him before Luka Doncic, it's a little painful right now for Sacramento Kings fans. But um, Mobley's unique. I mean, you're talking about, as far as comparison, Chris, Chris Bosh on offense, Pau Gasol on offense, maybe Anthony Davis on defense. I don't think he's anywhere close to Davis offensively because Davis has amazing shot creation and can just shoot over anybody. He's kind of like, I mean, Anthony Davis has some Durant characteristics uh, when he's on, you know, when he's healthy. Uh, Mobley to me is more finesse. He's been described as a good athlete. I think he's a little slower paced than that. I think he's more methodical. Uh, he's got really good playmaking. Like he could make live dribble passes, which is very unique for seven footers. He uh, he only made 12 threes in college, but the form is good. There's no reason why he can't stretch the floor at the next level. He's got pretty good post moves. He can roll. He makes smart decisions. And, you know, I think as far as the touch, like as far as uh, being um, a smooth offensive player, it reminds me a lot of Pau Gasol. Like Pau Gasol was really smooth offensively. Doesn't have the speed, doesn't have the uh, elevation, doesn't have the supreme athleticism, but he's able to figure out where he needs to go to create a good scoring opportunity. So um, he plays with his back to the basket, but nowadays, you know, it's not necessarily favorable. I think he's more cut out to be face up. He could rise kind of like how Chris Bosch did in his prime, or he could take you off the dribble. Um, I think the biggest concern with Mobley, and this is a big concern for a lot of bigs over the years is does he play with a high enough motor? Like there's a lot of times when I watch his college film, he's not, doesn't always seem that engaged. I mean, I, I have some concerns about, is he always going to play at that, you know, aggressive in that aggressive way that you need from a top player? Like if he's going to be a cornerstone player on a team, is he always going to be the guy like down the stretch of a game? Can you give the ball to him and make a play? Or is he going to kind of back down in those situations? I'm not necessarily suggesting that he can't handle that, but there's a little bit of passiveness in his game. Hmm. I'm not convinced that he's going to be able to say I'm taking over this game. Like, like, and this is, I'm not at all comparing him to Kevin Durant. We saw in the playoffs, we've seen in the playoffs many times, you give the ball to Durant, like he wants it, right? Like he's so focused, like you can't stop him. I'm not, I'm not sure if Mobley has that in him, but offensively he's skilled. And then defensively, he was the Pac-12 defensive player of the year, maybe the best defender in all of college basketball because he's seven feet and he can, he could switch. Like he can guard anyone. You could, you can make an argument, even though he can't guard post-up players because he's lacking strength, he could essentially guard one through five. And it was very hard for opponents to beat him off the dribble. Uh, he makes, he's got really good instincts. He, he makes deflections. Uh, he, he intercepts passes. Uh, and when he intercepts passes, he can then start dribbling up the floor because he's skilled on that end. And so like defensively sky's the limit for him. And I think that's the main reason why he's projected to go so high in the draft skilled offensively. But I think there's question marks, whether he could really be like a prolific scorer. And then defensively, he's arguably the most intimidating of them all in this draft. Uh, and then, and then Suggs, I'll say this, Suggs to me is the best game manager that I've seen in this draft as far as orchestrating an offense. He's really good in transition, amazing athleticism. The guy was a quarterback, a high-level quarterback in high school in Minnesota, and he probably could have played high-level college football, 
but chose basketball. He, uh, he makes great passes, makes great reads. I, I feel like he's a more, well, best case scenario, he's a more athletic Chris Paul in the sense that you can run a team around him and he'll make quality decisions every time down the floor. And he's super unselfish. I've heard, I've, I've really uh, heard a lot about the Chauncey Billups comparisons, which I think is kind of similar because they're great game managers. Uh, Suggs is more athletic than Billups and Billups was a better shooter, but I could see the comparisons there. Yeah. Uh, you know, floor comparisons, I, I see a little bit of George Hill, Corey Joseph, but those obviously would not be ideal for the team that, that gets him. Um, my concern with him would simply be, is he, again, is, is he someone who could take over a game from a scoring standpoint? Because he never had to at Gonzaga. They had so many good players on that team, whether it be Corey Kispert or Ajayi. They, they just had a collection of NBA players, really, that he was never asked or needed to take over a game from a scoring perspective. And so I don't know if he has it in him to create for himself. He did it a little bit at Gonzaga, but I thought it waned as the season went on. If you notice, like in the beginning of the year, he was much more aggressive and then it kind of tapered off. He did get hurt early, uh, but it wasn't a major injury. And I never really sensed throughout the NCAA tournament, his numbers were okay, but I never sensed that he was going to take over a game offensively. You know, I think he was always getting his teammates involved, making quality decisions, but it was questionable whether if you need, if he was the only guy on the team that can get you a big time bucket, could he get it for you? And that, that still remains to be seen. That was unanswered in college. So that would be my roundup yeah. of those five. Great stuff. <laughs> oh, that's great. I mean, you know, you, the breakdowns you've just given us are fantastic. It's uh, the college game is not something we get to watch regularly here in the, in the UK, unless we, uh, like Paul said, if you watch some YouTube clips and they're normally edited just to show the best clips. So uh, uh, so if you'd be so kind, um, <laughs> with the NBA media having the next sort of five, five to ten and with the magic picking at eight, uh, I know you've got, you know, your stipulations. Could you tell us a little bit more about uh, some of the following? Uh, Scotty Barnes, Keon Johnson, Jalen Johnson, Franz Wagner, and uh, Mitchell, perhaps, if you would be so kind. Yeah, sure. I'll start with Scotty Barnes, who is super unique in that he's kind of like Draymond Green, where he is a playmaking forward. He theoretically 6'9", with a 7'3 wingspan, which is much larger than Draymond. You know, Draymond is like 6'6", with a much less of, of a wingspan. But their play style is very similar in the sense that sees the floor really well, makes plays for others, and... You know, the concern obviously is the shooting. The form is not bad at all, but he hasn't proven at all yet that he could be a knockdown shooter by any means. And I'm not convinced necessarily that we'll ever expect him to be a lights out three point shooter, but he has to just become respectable in that area. He is an aggressive player. So I wouldn't be surprised if he's someone that spends a lot of time in the gym. Florida State guys, as we've seen in recent years, work hard. You know, credit to their coaching staff because all of them that come into the NBA, we saw with Jonathan Isaac, Dwayne Bacon, you know, even guys like Malik Beasley and the recent guys, Patrick Williams and Devin Vassell, all I've heard amazing things about them as far as what they're able to do in the in the in the weight room and in the gym. So I wouldn't be shocked if if Barnes falls into that category as well. I think the most impressive thing with him outside of the playmaking, the vision, the ability to get others involved at his size is his man-on-man -man defense is amazing. I mean, he'll he'll literally guard guys up up and down the floor like 
the ball pressure from like a press standpoint. Like I, I think there were a few times in college where, and he mostly played in a six man role at Florida state, but he would, he would step-by-step be with his opponent and usually with like a guard all the way down the floor from the time it was inbounded past half court and then into the front court. He, he was just unbelievable. And it was, it was super impressive. And I think that if he could translate that to the next level, uh, that's a really good sign for him going forward. And then other than that, the length is probably what's helping him rise up draft boards. I would imagine. I mean, it's very hard to find a guy who's borderline point guard. Again, it depends on the situation he's put in. Will he be a true or a full-time point guard, or will he be more of a secondary or tertiary point guard? Uh, it's hard. And Ben Simmons is obviously the lone example where you're kind of playing him at that position and he's got that kind of size and he can run the offense. Uh, but again, I don't, nobody necessarily expects him to be a prolific score. Uh, I feel like I've emphasized that with a few of these guys and mm-hmm. it would be surprising, but not impossible if he became like a 20 point per game guy, it's possible, but he's going to really have to develop his, his offensive arsenal and become sharper on that end and be someone who could at least hit a mid range shot or, have a few dribble moves, dribble combination moves to carve out space and, and create a shot for himself. So that that's pretty much Barnes to me. I, I would say Draymond or Ben Simmons or maybe his best comparisons, mm. uh, best case scenarios anyway. Uh, so he's, he's interesting. Um, and I always like the Florida state connection uh, because they've, they've produced some amazing players lately. Uh, maybe amazing is a strong word, but they've, they've produced some quality. Solid NBA players. Players. Yeah, yeah. Solid guys. Yeah. Um, so, and then uh, who else we got? You said James Booknight? Jalen? Uh, no, let's go Jalen Johnson. Jalen Johnson. Because- Jaylen, Jaylen Johnson. So this is another interesting thing about this draft. I've never seen a draft ever. We've had this many six foot eight or taller playmaking forwards. We've already talked about Barnes. We've talked about Cade Cunningham. I think you also mentioned Franz Wagner. He's another one. Yeah. And, and so... Jalen Johnson's among those that does that. He is extremely good in transition. I mean, you could argue among the guys I just mentioned, he's the best in transition. Uh, You know, I've seen, it's strong. I've seen the Scottie Pippen comparison. They have similar stature, a similar height, uh, move similarly, and can kind of run an offense similarly as far as the way Pippen was maybe like early in his career. I don't know. It's hard when you're comparing a guy to like a hall of famer, but because obviously the chances of that happening is like slim to none, <laughs> but I could see why they're being compared to each other. Um, I mean, he was a high level. I mean, went to Duke. He was considered one of the best prospects in the country coming out of high school. So uh, there wouldn't be a, a shock if he went on to become an all-time great, but uh, the fact that he only played in the 13, I think it was 13 games at Duke, uh, walked away because he wanted to focus on the NBA draft. Uh, you know, Duke wasn't playing very well, so it wasn't in his best interest to stay there, I guess. But uh, but some of the same concerns is like a Barnes, where there's question marks about his shooting. Um, he shot a high percentage in college, but he didn't take many, and he was never really thought of as a great shooter. So that's, I would say, a, a fairly... You know, I don't. I want to say a significant, significant concern, but something that needs to be uh, analyzed going forward. 
Uh, and then unlike a guy like Barnes or a, a Jonathan Kaminga, for example, uh, I'm not convinced that he's going to be an elite defender. He's capable, but I think he's a little more awkward defensively. I don't think he's as coordinated. I don't think he's as engaged defensively from what I've seen. Uh, and his shot creation is questionable. Like, you know, he's got a few moves that I saw. Like he could take you in the post a little bit. Like if he has a smaller defender on him, uh, I've seen him a few times where he'll he'll like do a couple moves, like back back down a little bit and then maybe fade back or maybe give a little bit of an up and under. But it's it's awkward. It's kind of clunky. It's less coordinated. So I, I think his biggest strength is the transition game, running an offense, and then his length, uh, being able to shoot over smaller defenders. I would say that's probably his his number his top uh, qualities. Uh, Franz Wagner, like I said before, he's another playmaking forward. But the thing about him, you know, obviously his brother uh, Mo Wagner, um, who, who recently played with the Magic, he. He's interesting. He reminds me a lot of Hito Turkoglu. I mean, I'm not saying they're identical, but he could play in pick and roll really well. Like his, he, he was 6'9", 220 pounds. So he sees over defenders really well. He makes really good pocket passes, is really crisp, finds guys in back door, finds the cutters, finds the, the guys on the perimeter for kickouts. Uh, very impressive vision. So I think he could be a great playmaking forward. But then even better, he, his defense is great. You know, like that's yeah. actually one of uh, Mo Wagner's weaknesses, right? He's not a great defender. Um, he can't switch and pick and roll. He's, you know, okay at protecting the basket, but not great. His, his younger brother is great at that, whether it's guarding on the perimeter or dropping back and pick and roll and protecting the basket. He's actually elite. Uh, so that I think is why he's probably uh, considered a high, you know, high level draft prospect. He only shot 32% from three, but it's an improving 32%. He seems like he's headed in the right direction. I would say the problem with, with Franz Wagner, he's very slow, right? There, and and Turkoglu was like that. Like Turkoglu didn't have speed, yeah. but Turkoglu read the defense. He manipulated the defense and he had the right pieces around him in Orlando, especially with Dwight Howard, Jameer Nelson, Richard Lewis, for him to capitalize on his strengths because you can't expect him to score a lot. He doesn't have enough of an a shot creation arsenal to be a great scorer. But he could be an all-around guy if he's got the right pieces around him and be a great playmaker and throw it up for lobs, get into the paint, kick out. Like I just think he's he's smart. He makes the right reads. And but again, the 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 fact that he doesn't have any speed, he's got no burst. He can't like explode to the basket. Uh, I, I would say is his number one concern. Um it also reminds me a little bit of Mike Dunleavy Jr. a little bit, although Dunleavy Jr. was a much better shooter. Uh, I thought their movements were similar. Um, oh, defensively, Andre Karolinko is probably his top comp. I mean, I could see that. I mean, Karolinko was an, a universally good defender guarding multiple situations. Uh, so who were who some of the others? Uh, the, the last two are Keon Johnson and uh, Mitchell from Baylor. Okay, so yeah, Keon Johnson is the the... the true explosive athlete. I mean, I think he ranked number one in the vertical leap at the combine. Uh, he jumps out of the building. I mean, he's really unpolished. He's a project. You know, there, there's always the guys you talk about going into the draft. Who's a, who, who are guys who are going to step in right away and make an impact? And who are guys that, you know, you got to give them time. He's one of those guys. I, I would assume you got to give him a lot of time. You know, he had gotten hurt in college. I'm sorry. He had gotten hurt in high school. 
So he was Mr. Tennessee basketball his sophomore and junior year and then got hurt his senior year. So a little bit of a setback. And then he played the one year at Tennessee and was okay. But he's, I think, considered higher on people's draft boards because of potential, not because of what he necessarily did in college. He's He was okay. I, I think he's a little bit like Isaac Okoro with a little bit less length um, because his defense is really good. He, he's really good on ball defense, applies a lot of pressure. Uh, his length is pretty good. Uh, the question there is like Okoro coming out of Auburn, does he have enough of an does he have enough in his offensive arsenal to make an impact on that end? He wears number 45. And we'll get to Davion Mitchell in a moment, who also wears 45. But there have been a few Donovan Mitchell comparisons for Keon Johnson. It's probably a little extreme. Um, I'm not sure he has quite the offensive movements that, that Donovan Mitchell has. But sometimes when you're watching them, you could see a, a few comparisons. But uh, I think he's more of a defensive prospect than he is an offensive prospect. But we'll see. You know, he's, he's like I said, he's unpolished. He's really raw. But I think he has a chance if he can develop the outside shot, develop more in his offensive uh, repertoire. And then cool. finally, um, Davion Mitchell, who, you know, arguably the most improved college basketball player in the, in, in the country last year at Baylor, transferred from Auburn after his freshman year and then played two years at Baylor. Uh, nobody saw this coming because I don't think he was on anybody's draft boards before his uh, what would have been his redshirt junior year. Uh mm. Prior to his junior year, his three-point shooting was poor. Uh, always a great defender. I mean, you know, like a, like with Keon Johnson, his his on-ball pressure is incredible. He's been compared to Drew Holiday, uh, Marcus Smart, because his defense is what his calling card is. He smothers you. I mean, it's like it's relentless, and that's one of the, him and Jared Butler, obviously in their backcourt. Uh, but that's the main reason they won the national championship is that they were able to smother every single opponent. We saw it even against Gonzaga in the title game, Houston. Uh, in the in the in the final four, uh, and, and and Davion Mitchell had a big impact on that. Uh, it's just very hard to create space when he's your defender, kind of like how it is with Marcus Smart. He's kind of a bulldog, gets in your face, very tenacious, a lot of intensity, uh, plays with the right desire, the right determination. So the offense is the big question mark. He's he's been he's, the comparisons are out there to Donovan Mitchell. Uh, there's even been some jokes about it because on the court they look similar, but. It's it's tough to I mean he could he could transform into that, but he's he's going to be 23 at the start of the NBA season. So if he was 1920, he very well could be a top five pick. And maybe he will, who knows? But the fact that he's turning 23 is probably what's alarming for general managers. Um has he reached his ceiling because of his age? It's possible. But the fact that he went from I want to say it was like 31% from three his sophomore year to 45% from three his junior year. If my numbers are correct, I think those were right. You guys can look them up, but uh, was stunning. Like nobody saw that coming. Like he's a really good pull-up shooter. So he's always had that in his arsenal. Like he could do it one or two dribble pull-up and be very efficient. He was one of the most efficient pull-up jump shooters in the country uh, this past year. And it really showed throughout the, throughout the NCAA tournament. So, uh, you know, he's interesting, but his age is probably his number one concern, along with the fact that we don't really know if he has the explosive offensive game to be a prolific scorer. He is a really good, uh, I wouldn't call him an elite passer by any means, but he does see the floor pretty well. Um, but he is a bad free throw shooter. 
I think he shot only maybe 64% from the line or something like that last year, which is bizarre when you're shooting 45% from three and only 60 something percent Mm -hmm. from the line. That's a little bit of a concern as well. Uh, But he is willing to get to the line. You know, he's got a strong body. Uh, He's, he's passionate. He plays with the right zest and he's willing to get into the paint and make plays. So uh, again, as all of them are very interesting prospect and we'll see where he lands in the draft. Well, thank you for that. That's That's amazing insight. Amazing insight. Amazing insight. I try to spend as much time as I can, you know, studying all these players and getting the best, you know, insight I can give for myself, just watching as much footage and games and, you know, you know, everybody sees something a little bit different. Like I, I, I've watched other people compare certain guys and I'm like, I don't quite see that. Or they said something that I didn't see. And I'm like, Oh, I, I can understand that. You know, you start to pick up things as you, as you go. And, and I feel like, uh, just watching as much as you can, I feel like helps. And I'm sure that's what all the front office men and women do in these, in these uh, NBA organizations. Yeah. Well, there's other names we haven't touched on, (laughs) like, uh, James Booknight, Sen Goon, Josh Giddy. Um, if I had to ask you for one sleeper pick that might not even be in the top, might not even be a top five pick. It might be one of the names you've already mentioned. Who would you, say that, that that might be my guy long term yeah uh, well not, not for the magic sorry sorry <laughs> yeah <laughs> but, that's okay you know Shane, i think has drawn a lot of attention recently understandably and deservedly i mean he just played some FIBA games and now he's doing it against much more proven competition mm-hmm. uh his his offensive arsenal is very impressive, but a little old fashioned. I'm not saying it can't translate to the NBA because even though he's not a stretch big right now, I think he only made four, three pointers in the Turkish league last year. I think he's ultimately going to be at least a respectable outside shooter, but his footwork on the low block is very advanced for 18 years old. Uh, great roll game. Like he rolls to the basket hard, can finish very efficient again against weaker competition out in Turkey, but he's shown the flashes Probably the concern there is the defense. He 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 has not proven at all yet to be a rim protector or somebody that can guard in space. So that's a big question mark. Um, who are some others that I think could be sleepers on draft night? Um, trying to think of somebody worth mentioning. I don't want to just throw out a name. Uh, you know, maybe I'll go through uh, my quick list here and and see. I want to point out the right guy instead of just randomly picking a name because I haven't thought quite about that yet. I'm still kind of the early phases of determining who I think could be someone maybe maybe in the second round that could uh, go on and, and become a, a solid NBA pro. Um, it's that diamond in the rough, like a yeah, that diamond in the rough. Devin Booker or yeah, yeah, Yanis, Kawhi, Paul George, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, well, he, he kind of fell off a little bit during the college season, but I still would not give up on him. That's Zaire Williams out of Stanford. And I know I've mentioned a lot of PAC 12 guys on this show, but, uh, and I have no rooting interest in the PAC 12, but it just so happens. So Zaire Williams coming into the college season was <clears throat> supposed to be a top 10 pick. I mean, he's borderline 6'10", has a great shooting release. His mechanics are great. He uh, 
he struggled in college. He didn't shoot the percentage that everybody thought he was going to shoot. Stanford, you know, really wasn't as good as everybody thought they could be. Granted, it was, you know, a shortened season and everything. But he was a high-level prospect coming out of high school, and I don't think he quite lived up to that potential. But, you know, when you're 6'10", practically 6'10", and you have the shooting mechanics that he has, and he has some good movement, like laterally, like he can he can dribble – left or right, pull up. And even though he wasn't knocking them down consistently at Stanford, if that changes, he's going to be a problem. Like, I don't know if anybody can guard that shot. I mean, theoretically, like, you know, they're one of the reasons. And again, I don't want to compare these guys to the Hall of Famers or perennial all-stars. But, you know, when you when you think about a Kevin Durant or even like a Paul George, you know, their length and their efficiency, you can't guard it. It becomes an unguardable problem. You know, I don't, I'm not sure if Zaire Williams is still a first round pick. I mean, he might be, uh, I would think some team might take a chance on him, maybe mid to late first round, if not in the early part of the second round, but, uh, he's intriguing to me because of his, his body composition, his projection coming into college. Uh, it's not fair to me to assess someone based on what they did during a shortened college season with COVID, all the restrictions. We don't know if he was able to get into the, you know, he, he's got a very thin frame, like very thin. So he's got to bulk up his body, but I saw at least enough flashes to believe that over time with some more maturation and more development that he could definitely be a steal. Um, whoever takes him at whatever slot, uh, you know, you can say that about anybody though. So it's, it, I'm always hesitant to be like, okay, that's the guy because we've seen so many times that it's always the guy you never would have thought of. Like 2012, Chris Middleton gets drafted. I, you know, maybe you could have mentioned one or two things about Chris Middleton at that time. And, you know, turns out he's one of the best players from that draft, one of the best players in the league. So, you know, but this is the other thing. And this is a little bit of a, a side note, or this is a little bit of a, you know, digression, but, you know, and I know we all make a huge deal about the draft lottery every year. Like it seems to drive this incredible amount of interest and enthusiasm. And understandably, it's a lot of anticipation. It's a lot of fun. It's a reason to get together with people and root, root on the, you know, for your team to, to win the lottery. But we're seeing year after year after year, the lottery and where you're positioned in the draft doesn't really matter that much. You know, I, I actually did a list recently and I hope my memory serves me correctly. Um, in fact, I have some of it listed here, so I can actually, so I did this list. So I'm not even going to name the players, although maybe here or there I will. So 2011, right? The best players from that draft were selected 1st, 9th, 11th, 15th, 16th, 19th, and 30th. Of course, first that year was Kyrie Irving. Kemba Walker was that year. Kawhi Leonard was 15 that year. Clay Thompson was 11. Those were also the years that, uh, or that was also the year that Vucevic and Tobias Harris were picked. Um, 2012, 1, 3, 6, 9, 20, 35, 39. Of course, Chris Middleton was one of those guys in the second round. Draymond Green was also in that year. Uh, 2013, 2, 10, 15, and 27. Of course, Giannis was 15 that year. 2014. 3, 7, 13, 25, 39, 41, 2015, 1, 2, 4, 13, 13 was Devin Booker, 2016, 1, 2, 3, 7, 11, 20, 27, Gobert, I'm sorry, not Gobert, um, Siakam was, uh, was 27, 2017, 3, 5, 13, 14, uh, of course, Donovan Mitchell was 13, Bam Adebayo was 14, so we're seeing this year after year after year that like, 
it doesn't really matter where you pick. You just have to make the right decision at the slot you're in. Now, granted, most number one picks, as emphasized in that list, do go on to become really good players. But after that, it's kind of hit or miss. I mean, 2018, I didn't mention them in the, in the list, but like, you know, Aiden's coming into his own. You know, he's a good player. Yeah. But Doncic was third, Trey Young was fifth. And then if you want to go further, you got Shea Gildas Alexander was 11th, Michael Porter Jr. was 14th. So, uh, I mean, it's we, funny how we make such a big deal about the lottery, but honestly, I don't, I think it's coming to a point where it's very overrated and in the end, doesn't matter that much. You just have to get the right guy at the slot that, you know, wherever you're picking, whichever team you are. Yeah. Anyways, that's a little bit of a off track we, thing, we, but we've had the same conversation. Yeah. The last few weeks. I mean, okay. Exactly. I'm not the only one then. Yeah. Cause I, you know, I, I get it. Like it's a reason to get excited about like, and again, great for Detroit and, and maybe whoever they pick goes on and becomes an all-time great superstar hall of famer, you know, but like in the end, the best player from the draft could be the 33rd pick, right. Which is, you know, the second round where the, where the magical pick yeah. were, you know, we, we just don't know. And years later we'll find out. And, and it's just and good like, to have. And, and like you were naming number one picks. I mean, I said this last week, you can name, for every number one pick that worked out, there was another one that didn't. You think Anthony Bennett and Andre Bargnani and do you know what I mean? The, the list goes yeah, on as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I went through this once before. This is nothing uh, fresh in my mind, but I think if I'm not mistaken, there have been more number three picks that have gone on to become all-stars than number two picks. Now, with all that said, percentages suggest that, yes, it's more likely to have an all or get an all-star at like six than it is at 11, right? Or just based on the collection, if you throw it all together, but there's going to be the spottiness of it all. Like one year, the guy who's picked 15th will be the best player, as we saw with Kawhi Leonard and Giannis Antetokounmpo. And then other years, the 15th pick, you'll never hear from him again, right? So yeah. it's it's very spotty and unpredictable. But the point is, is that there's, a, there's this false narrative that like the higher pick you have, the more the more likely you are to get a great player. And it's, that's not to me very accurate anymore. Maybe it used to be in like the seventies and eighties. Cause if you look at those years, it was more likely for the guys picked higher. Uh, like, you know, if you had the first or second pick, you maybe were more likely and that's even debatable, but you know, as far as the magic specifically, you know, five, eight, those could be the two best players in the draft, yeah. you know, and, and not winning the lottery may not matter at all, you know? There was a uh, really interesting thread on one of the Magic um, fan groups on Facebook uh, that I saw, whereby somebody had put on, I'm really fed up of seeing all these posts about, just think we could have took Devin Booker and we took, uh, was it Hazonia that year? That year, yeah, Mario Hazonia. Yeah. And the guy had put, so if you're going to come on here and say this, that we should have took this guy and we should have took this guy, I want your, your top 10 list for this year. And then in two years' time or three years' time, <laughs> yeah. we'll come back on here on this forum and we'll berate you for your lack of knowledge on the picks and it, yeah. see how accurate you were. And I thought that was a brilliant post. Very, It's spot on. It's a genius statement. It, it's exactly right. You don't know. From year to year, it, we all have our list. We have our mock you know, mocks, we have our draft boards. We have our, this belief in our mind. Oh, that guy is definitely better than that guy. Or that guy is definitely. And in the end, you know, you just it, never know. 
You never know. Let me tell you, I definitely didn't go on and give my top 10. Um, and there were very, very few who appeared to have uh, put any post on there to say, well, this is my top 10. Very few like, very few had the confidence to do it. Yeah, It was interesting. Yeah. It was very interesting. You really think about it like, you know, there's 60 guys taken in the draft, right, each year. Only seven or eight of them will actually make a dramatic impact on a franchise, right? There'll be... 15, 20 of them that go on to become good role players. But like only six, seven, eight of them each year will actually like completely change the complexion of a franchise. Mm -hmm. So, and as I just mentioned, you know, with that list that I, that I presented, you know, 2011, Jimmy Butler was a 30th pick, yeah. you know? Yeah. So the MVP was what in the forties. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. 41. Yeah, right. Yeah, so Jokic forty one in two thousand fourteen. Yeah. He was the year. Yeah, he was the he was the year when it was considered the greatest draft class ever. You know, that was Andrew Wiggins, Jabari Parker, of course, Joel Embiid, Aaron Gordon, um, and Jokic was a second rounder, and now he's the MVP. So it's it's a good debate, and I see it from both sides. But I'm more leaning toward it doesn't. You know, it's it's just good to have a, a, an abundance of picks. That's why I like the trades and Magic Man because the more picks you have, the more chance you have of getting a guy or yeah. the best player in the draft, whatever, whatever slot you're picking from. I was going to ask you around um, if the Magic chose to move up the draft or try and move up the draft, what it was going to take. But I honestly think it might be putting a you in a difficult position. So I'm just going to ask you something slightly different. And yeah. it's not entirely Magic, but it's not Magic related. It's actually the league related. Do you think that the uh, rumoured plans to implement the changing rules on uh, uh, giving an offensive foul for where the shooter leans in at an odd angle or kicks his leg out and abruptly jumps into the defender are going to be good for the league. It's going to be good for the game. I think so. Maybe it'll help. So obviously there's a lot of stoppage in the game, whether it be because of fouls or because of instant replay and all that. I think it's always going to keep the game moving at a nice flow. Uh, it will hurt maybe guys like James Harden and Trey Young. I don't know. We'll see how that mm -hmm. plays out. Of course, Trey Young is just coming into his own now and is about to be, you know, one of the the main headliners in the NBA going forward. Of course, James Harden is probably on the tail end of his prime. So maybe it won't matter. the two guys pictured on the above <laughs> the uh, the rules are being implemented or potentially implemented. <laughs> and it's amazingly a picture of Trey Young and. James Harden both shooting funny. and drawing fouls. Yeah, I mean, but you know what? So I'm fine with it. I have no problem with what the NBA wants to do for whatever reasons. Uh, but but I will say drawing fouls is a skill. You know, it's learning the tendencies of your defenders and understanding the rules and figuring out how you can get your defender to slip up. I mean, and, and the two guys that do it best are basically Harden and Trey Young. You could, you know, Joel Embiid gets Ross. You can put What's an argument that? in there for Terrence Ross being a, a, a very good really, actor. Really good at getting contact on the three-point shot. I mean, like DeMar DeRozan has made a living off that. I mean, DeMar DeRozan is a great example because he said, you know what? I don't even have to figure out the three-point shot. I'll just continue to draw a million fouls, and that's how I'll get my points. Although, of course, he's also a great mid-range shooter. But uh, So I don't have a problem with it, but to me, it could, it could theoretically take away from the, the art of drawing a foul, which – is a part of the game and it is a skill, you know, some guys can do it well and some guys can't. And to me, it also is a sign of being aggressive and it's a sign of willing to absorb contact. Something that, you know, some guys are just afraid to do. 
Um, you know, and I, I do think if, if I was evaluating prospects, for example, in the draft, I mean, that's something I heavily would look at, like how willing are they to initiate contact? Because I think the, the, the research shows that the, the, I think it's a layup that's your best source or best way to score. And then a foul shot is second. You know, we take so many, they take so many threes now that it always feels like that has to be the go-to shot. But really in the end, it's a layup or a foul shot that really is the most efficient way to score. So I think drawing fouls is so critical, but if they're, you know, we'll see what the, what it looks like as it plays out, as far as the new rules, Uh, I'm sure it won't bend that much. I'm sure there'll still be enough foul calls and guys who are Mm -hmm. able to do it at a high level and get to the line, but it could it could affect the way certain guys play, notably, as we mentioned, Trey Young and James Harden. I just wonder, because obviously with the, you were talking so much about the, when we were talking about the coaching side of things, the the notion that defence isn't played now. And is it kind of, are these rules allowing defence to come back into a little bit more? Maybe. I'm sure that's part of the philosophy and part of the mindset of what they want to do to make some of those kinds of changes. I mean, we did see all time scoring uh, this year and obviously the three point shot is being taken at a level that we've never seen before. And it continues to go up and up each year. But as I touched on earlier in the show, I I think it's a complete false narrative to say that nobody's playing defense. I actually firmly believe based on what I'm seeing with my eyes, some of the best defenders of all time are playing currently. Yes, by and large, there's a lot of guys who don't play defense. That That's no secret. But the best ones, and again, I, I, we've already touched on him, and I know he's been getting tons of criticism from, from fans and, and even media and whoever else, but Ben Simmons' defense is so elite. Like, I would – it's too early in his career. He's 24, going to be maybe 25 soon. But based on the way he played defense this year – just on a single season level, I'm not sure there's 10 better defenders than him all time, right? I mean, he was obviously runner up for defensive player of the year this year, but I'm not convinced that you can find me 10 players in NBA history that had a better defensive season than him. A guy who can guard in every situation imaginable, one through five, switch in everything, stay in front of his defenders, block three-point shots, chase down blocks, guard in the post, everything. I personally think he should have won defensive player of the year. Uh, as we saw, Gobert got exposed a little bit against the Clippers when he had to step out into the perimeter because, you know, Gobert is a more traditional defender. He's a rim protector. He's a, he's a, he alters shots. I mean, that's what he does. Uh, and he doesn't foul too much. But when you put him out on the perimeter, it's a problem because he doesn't move his feet that well and he's not accustomed to it. So with all that said, I think Draymond Green recently said during the season that he's the best defender of all time. And while it's probably a stretch to say he's the best defender of all time. I, I don't think it's unfair to say that he is one of the top 10 defenders of all time. You know, he's another guy, you know, he's more of a backside guy these days where he's calling out everything and helping. And, you know, he's, he plays with so much energy and tenacity that like you could put him in any situation and he'll be effective. But uh, I, I see a great defender in him. There's guys who have bad defensive reputations that I personally think are very good defenders. I mean, I think his teammate, Andrew Wiggins has become a very good defender. Uh, And that was the thing that people always, I mean, there were multiple things, I guess he was criticized on earlier in his career, but one of them was his defense. And I think now he's, if not an elite defender, he's certainly above average. So kind of a sidebar perspective, but I, I think defense, although yes, there's many guys and many teams out there that are not playing defense at a high enough level. 
I think there's enough of them out there where it would be unfair to say that nobody's playing defense because, and, and even in these playoffs, I mean, I, I mentioned earlier how only two teams since 95 uh, have not ranked in the top 10 in defensive efficiency during the regular season that won the championship. Well, we're going to have another top 10 defensive team this year because Phoenix was sixth and Milwaukee yeah. was ninth. Yeah. And Milwaukee the last two years was number one. So if you want to put it all together, they've been a top five defensive team the last three years, essentially, if you ra- if you average them. So no matter who wins, we're going to see it again. And it's that's why when I talked earlier about the magic focusing on defense, like it, 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 it like look at Portland. I mean, we all rave about Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum and their high powered offense. But when you're 29th in defense, what is that going to do? Losing the first round. That's what's what happens. You know, Sacramento has all these great offensive players, but they're 30th in defense and they, they can't make the playoffs because they just don't defend. Um, teams that defend at least give themselves a chance. So, yeah. We mentioned the Bucks. We've got the Bucks versus the Suns tonight. Game one of the, uh, the NBA finals, which I believe tips off at 2 a.m. for us in the UK. It does. Yep. How, how do we see this, this series playing out? I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go to G first because I'm out from here tonight. <laughs> no, no. I'm, well, I'm gonna. I'm gonna stick with my pick from uh, when we were predicting before the uh, playoffs started. I went with the Suns to win the West. Um, although I had them to play the Nets in the final and Brooklyn to win, uh, I didn't see them tripping up, uh, which they did. So I'm gonna stick with the Suns uh, with Phoenix winning in six. Um, I was going to go Phoenix in five, but Giannis, uh, I read earlier, might be suiting up tonight. So, um, yeah, Phoenix in six and probably the MVP for Chris Paul. That's my pick. Cool. Paul? First of all, can I just say that unlike last year, I don't mind who wins. I didn't want either to win last year and didn't watch the finals because of it. Um, so I'm happy that we haven't got either of those in again this year. Um, works for me. Uh, I'm, I'm the same. Phoenix in six, mate. And I, I'd like to see Chris Paul get the MVP. I think he, uh, it's a, he's worked very, very hard to get to where he is. And uh, it can be annoying at times, but you know what? the guy deserves some success more power to him so yeah how'd you see the series playing out then Josh uh this is tough I mean obviously a lot of it hinges on Giannis's health Mm -hmm. I know right now he's listed as questionable for game one while we're having this show so we'll see what he if he either plays or what he looks like if he does play I think if he's at full strength and he probably won't be at full strength but if he was theoretically I definitely think the Bucks would be the uh, in my estimation, the, the better of the two teams, but because of his health situation, I guess I got to go Phoenix too. I'm torn here because I, oh. I, I think all around the, I personally think again with Giannis, the Bucks are the better team. So, but but that's saying it if Giannis was 100, percent and I'm not convinced he's going to be. I mean, that was that seemed like a pretty bad knee injury when he when it happened against Atlanta. So, you know, I hate to be uh, boring here and go with. The same, but I think I'm gonna go Phoenix in six. But I'm I'm torn. I'm I was tempted to say Milwaukee, but I'm not I'm not confident that Giannis is gonna be right. And with Booker, Paul, and Aiton being seemingly at full strength, I guess Chris Paul's hand is doing better from what they're saying. 
Yeah, I'll say Phoenix in six. I'll go Devin Booker, finals MVP. Okay. I'm going to go Suns in five. Ooh. <laughs> just to be different, I, or do you actually think that? Yeah, I like being different, <laughs> but I just think... I'm surprised Giannis is even questionable the way he went down in that in I that part of that game. So it was horrendous viewing when you looked at the angle that the knee went at. It's yeah. amazing he's not done something more serious. And I think even if he does come back, I think it, we we might see. I mean, you look back at the the Hawks series with Game Six. Trey Young, although he played, he you could tell he wasn't close to 100. percent And I think even if Giannis does come back, I don't think. We're going to see the player that we want to see in the finals. Um, so I think that's the only thing that might just sway the series and, and make it a little bit more one-sided. But we shall see. We shall see. But I'm Great super Two different teams there. Who was it that had Phoenix in the finals before the playoffs started? Because that's impressive. I, I, I know they had two seed, mm. but that is, no, that is an impressive <laughs> prediction. Because, I mean, most people had the Lakers beating them in the first round. Now, granted, Anthony Davis got hurt, but still. Yeah. I think most people thought that they had no, almost no chance of beating the Lakers, let alone getting all the way to the finals. I think I had Utah making the finals before the playoffs started, but that's that's a great and and it would have been Brooklyn Phoenix if yeah obviously Harden yeah. Kyrie. But again, that uh, I didn't get any of the last four correct. Didn't get any of the last four yeah, correct. I think I had I think I had Jazz Lakers and Sixers Nets. Yeah. Yep. Well, yeah in fairness, I got I got to <laughs> shout this out. My brother, who's an OKC fan, he had Atlanta. Yes, he did. He had Atlanta winning them all, winning it all. <laughs> but you know, at least they got to the uh, the conference finals. So, we're props to him on that. Wow. I thought Atlanta were fantastic to watch. Great spirit amongst their team. They, oh, yeah. they just didn't know when to lay down. I think the really fact impressive. that they weren't healthy during the regular season made them a little bit more of a surprise in the postseason. We touched on it earlier yeah. on the change of coaching and and yeah. what that guy has done for that team. Amazing, amazing job. And he's just got a four year deal out of it. So uh, yeah, <laughs> there we go. Yeah, good stuff. Right, guys, that's that's it. That make that'll do us for this week. Uh, Josh, thank you for coming on again. Yeah, we Thanks appreciate for me. we appreciate, really appreciate all your insight and uh, you've uh, certainly filled us in with uh, a lot more knowledge ready for the draft in a couple of weeks. So uh, we'll, we'll see how it shakes out. Um, one little plug for Josh. Um, I know you've been putting up on orlandomagic.com your, you, you've been doing strengths and weaknesses and breakdowns on some of the, some of the draft prospects. So make sure you go and check out Josh's work over there. Um, for, for the latest news, follow orlandomagicuk.com on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, and YouTube. Um, and make sure you visit our website, orlandomagicuk.com. So, guys, until next week, go magic. <laughs>